So have you ever heard something that didn't make sense? You know, something that just, just didn't make sense. I came across an interesting list from Cassandra Metz of comments that may make you scratch your head a little bit, just things that don't make sense. Like this one. It's always the last place you look. Well, of course, <laughs> because why would you look to the next place if you've already found what you have? So, yeah, it's always going to be the, the last place you look. What about this one? Needless to say, if it's needless, why would you say it? You know, just, just don't. Just keep it to yourself. It's fine. No big deal. We'll, we'll survive. What about this one? Can I ask you a question? What are you going to do, you know? I mean, just once in my life, I would like to go, no, and just walk off, you know, just, just, just disappear. Yeah, sometimes it'd be nice. What about this one? Same difference. Same difference. That's, that's not even technically possible, right? It can't be the same difference. All right, if you're listening and you can't see the picture, that's a real egg and a Cadbury egg. It's not the same, all right? It's, it's different. One's got chocolate. I tend to think of same difference in the words of philosopher Inigo Montoya. I do not think it means what you think it means. The same difference. It just, it just doesn't work. Sparky Anderson was a major league baseball player and coach and manager for years and years with the Detroit Tigers. Uh, J.D. Brandon tells a story of how Sparky was once trying to get his all-star shortstop, Alan Trammell, to play even though he had a really, really sore shoulder. And this is what he said to Trammell. Pain don't hurt. <laughs> that sounds like a coach line, right? Pain don't hurt. But it bit hurt. You know, his, his shoulder hurt. But, but what was he trying to do? He was trying to convince his player that he could play through the pain. You know, it's one thing to ask a professional athlete to play through the pain for a three to four hour baseball game. But what about the person that has pain that lasts longer than three hours? What about the person that's going through mental or emotional or physical or medical or financial, chronic, terminal? Pain that, that doesn't just go away. Pain that you can't just tough it out for a few hours. The sick child. The devastated parent. The heartbroken teenager. The depressed grandparent the stressed out friend, the helpless stranger. Are you, are you going to look at those people and, and say, hey, man, pain don't hurt? Are you going to text them or send them an Instagram meme that says, you know what, pain, pain don't hurt? No, you're not. Why? Because pain does hurt. And sometimes that pain will last more than three hours. And sometimes that pain will last more than three days. And sometimes that pain will last more than three years. Sometimes that pain will last more than three decades. You might be thinking, man, I'm so glad I came to Miserable Avenue Baptist Church this morning. Great. Love it. So is there any encouragement? I mean, is there 
a shred of hope in any of this? Is there something that does make sense? Is there something that can help you from completely losing heart? Yes, there is. What is it? Let's see if we can find out together. Paul's writing to his friends in a place called Corinth, the central city in Greece, ancient Greece, and he says this beginning in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 15. For all things are for your sakes. What's Paul mean by all things? Well, he means that everything that's happening to him in his life, all the things that are happening to him and and his ministry team, the things that were happening every day, the things that were happening all day long, and those all things that were happening all day long every day for him, they were all creating one steady thing in his life. And that one steady thing was pain. Pain. Paul experienced high levels of steady, awful pain. He was beaten at least 195 times with a whip. He was beaten with with rods. He was shipwrecked three times, not not emotionally shipwrecked. He was actually shipwrecked three times, left out at sea. He was robbed. He was thrown in jail a lot. He was sick a lot. He was screamed at a lot. He was hated by strangers a lot. He had stones hurled at him. He was left for dead a lot. Paul didn't really have an HGTV kind of life. It was rough. It was tough. He experienced pain and suffering over and over again. And what was the main instigator of his pain? What was it that created all of this pain in his life? What was the gospel of Jesus Christ? It was his faith in Jesus. Paul could have avoided most of the pain in his life if he would have just quit making Jesus first and most. Paul could have avoided most of the pain in his life if he would have just quit talking about Jesus, quit bringing Jesus up in conversation at meals and and quit preaching about Jesus. By the time he was 21 years old, it's been estimated that Paul had the equivalent of two PhDs. He was a rising star in the world of religion and politics. He could have very easily gone to be the the new, young, charismatic pastor of, of First Baptist Jerusalem. He could have very easily been the youngest department head over at Jerusalem A&M University. He could have opened his own consulting firm, his own law office, and, and he could have made a ton of money. But he didn't. Every morning, Paul got up and he faced the danger of being beaten He faced the danger of being thrown in prison. He faced the danger of being shipwrecked. He faced the danger of being left for dead. Why? Why did he face that kind of danger every day? Well, he did it for your sake. He did it for your sake. Now, you might be thinking, I didn't know Paul. Paul didn't know me. What do you mean? It's true. You you didn't know Paul, and Paul didn't know you, but but he was shipwrecked for your sake. He received 195 lashes with a whip for your sake. What does that mean? Well, Paul tells us. Listen to the next part of verse 15. For all things are for your sakes so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory 
of God. Paul was tortured so that the gospel would spread. The gospel is the good and great news that Jesus died to absorb the penalty, to pay the penalty of sin. The gospel is the good and great news that Jesus rose from the grave to verify and guarantee that his death was the real thing. And Paul faced death and torture every single day to make sure that the gospel made it to you. Paul did not want you to die in your sin. He did it for your sake. He endured unimaginable pain over and over again because he wanted you to be more than just a human on earth. He wanted you to know the thrill of what it means to be a citizen of heaven. His pain was for your gain. How How did this happen? This is what Paul wrote the folks at the church in Rome, Romans 10, verse 13. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So whoever comes to their senses, so to speak, whoever gathers their wits about them, whoever is quickened by the Spirit of God, and with their whole heart and their whole soul, they cry out to God in the sanctuary. They whisper to God in a dark corner of a room. Wherever they are, that person with their whole heart and their whole soul, when they cry out to God, God, save me, give me Christ, or else I die. That person, Paul says, is saved. What makes a person come to their senses like that? And and why would they even know that they need to call out to God? Paul tells us, verse 14 of Romans 10, How then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? How will they believe in him in whom they have not heard? See, Paul was preaching through the pain so that people like me and people like you would hear the gospel, would believe the gospel, and would be saved through the gospel. Paul wanted to be sure that we heard about Jesus. Interesting, though, Paul wasn't just concerned with the salvation of people. That that wasn't his actual primary goal. This is what he says next, same verse. So that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Paul was not hoping that he could send out an email to his church members or an email to his ministry contributors telling them the the new numbers of people that got saved at his church services and his crusades. No, Paul had a passion and a purpose that centered on the glory of God. John MacArthur said this, Paul's goal was never his own comfort, reputation, or popularity, nor was it ultimately the salvation of others. The final goal of Paul's selfless, sacrificial service was that more voices would be added to the hallelujah chorus of praise and worship to God. His pain was for our gain, but his pain was also for the glory of God and ultimately for the glory of God. You know, as we gather as, as a church here on, on Palm Sunday, it, it might be good and helpful and, and needful and maybe even urgently important to ask a simple question. What is the purpose of the church? Well, what is the purpose of Holland Avenue Baptist Church? And what is the purpose of the church in general? Is it that people might be saved and might come to know Jesus? 
Yes. Is it that believers who already know Jesus might be encouraged? Yes. But is that the primary purpose of the church? No. It's not. That sounds a little weird, but but think of it this way. Charles Bridges put it in this really cool way. The church is the mirror that reflects the whole effulgence or effulgence. You can say it either way. I looked it up. The whole effulgence of the divine character. It is the grand scene in which the perfections of Jehovah are displayed to the universe. Grand scene. So you thought you were just coming to church. You thought it was just Palm Sunday. This is a grand scene that displays Jehovah to the universe. You see, one of the the reasons that pettiness doesn't work in the life of the church is because this is not a petty place. If you are petty, you will not fit in. Because God has called the church to be a grand scene. Not a petty scene, but a grand scene. A grand place that displays Jehovah to the universe. Not a petty place where people fight over things that don't matter. I realize there are things to all of us that are very important to us, and sometimes those things are important to everybody else. But if we don't listen to what you think is important, like if the whole church, if all the believers don't listen to something that you think is important, it might be because it's not important. See, we haven't been called to be petty. We've been called to be a part of a grand scene. I'm just loving that. I love that that's what God is is calling us to be as part of his church. Now, I know you don't use the word effulgence when you're ordering a chalupa at the drive-thru every day, so, you know, we'll we'll, we'll walk away from that word and and try to make it a little more simple, okay? What what is this effulgence? What what is this grand scene? How can we put it in, in normal terms? The purpose of the church is to glorify God. The purpose of the church is to bring glory and fame and attention to God. That's the purpose of the church. Now, how do I know that's true? 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. Whether then you eat or drink or go to church or buy chalupas or whatever you do, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. If you are not a believer, the purpose of your life is the glory of God. If you're not a Christian, the purpose of your life is the glory of God. And you are not living in your purpose right now because you're not a believer. Your heart and your mind will always be not satisfied because you were designed, you were created to bring glory to God, to enjoy the glory of God. And if you're a believer, then your purpose is the glory of God. And so individually as believers, if that's our purpose, then all the more when we gather as God's people in the church, our purpose as a church is the glory of God. I mean, you don't pull up in the parking lot and go, oh, well, you know, I was supposed to glorify God this week, but I'm at church now. I'm just going to put that purpose in my green Publix tote bag in the trunk, and I'll come back and get it after church, you know. Or, you know, I'm just going to check that with the usher at the door, you know, because I'm going into church, so I don't need, you know, that glory of God stuff now. But don't, don't forget the opposite is also true. If the only time 
that you glorify God is in this room, you are not functioning as a Christian. If the only time that you bring glory to God is in this room, you're not functioning as a Christian because we're supposed to do all to the glory of God. Paul is saying that the purpose of his life, the purpose of his ministry, and don't miss this, the purpose of his pain, the purpose of his suffering, the purpose of the difficulties of his life is the glory of God. And just a little math for us as believers, it's not different for us. Our our purpose in life is the glory of God. And so when things are comfortable and good, our purpose is the glory of God. And when things are terrible, our purpose is the glory of God. And if we try to function outside of that, we will not be satisfied. Our pain will overwhelm us. Our pain will overtake us. Our pain is going to hurt no matter what. But if we will function with our pain as we have been created and really as we have been saved, we will not be crushed. That's a promise from God. But what if Paul was just a religious zealot? I mean, what if he's just drinking a bunch of olive oil and he doesn't know what he's talking about, you know? He's just, he's out of his mind and he's just decided that, you know, the the glory of God, that's just going to be his obsession and he's out to lunch. How do we know that, that we really are supposed to do all for the glory of God? Well, John In John chapter 12 of his gospel, he's writing about Palm Sunday. He's writing about Jesus coming into the city to all the shouts and the cheers. And he talks about that at the very beginning of John chapter 12. And then down in verse 28, he gives this quote from Jesus. Father, glorify your name. Days away from from facing the vicious pain of death. Being, being nailed to, to wooden beams and then being suspended up in the air and just, just hanging there to die. And even though he was perfect and completely innocent of all the charges that were brought against him, Jesus does not cower. Jesus does not shrink back. Jesus does not shy away from the cross. No, he presses on. So much so that he says, God, I want your name to be glorified in and through my pain. This brutal execution that I'm about to undergo, this this crucifixion, I want your name to be glorified. Someone might say, that that just doesn't sound right. Sounds like Jesus, he has some daddy issues. Sounds like this is some radical attempt to try to win the favor of his father. That's not it at all. See, the gruesome yet grand scene of the cross is is possibly the most perfect and amazing display of the glory of God. You see, Jesus knew that most people in Jerusalem were going to think that the truth of the cross was a bunch of foolishness. And Jesus knew that most people in the world in April of 2019 on Palm Sunday, they were going to think the truth of the cross was a bunch of foolishness. And Jesus knew that maybe even some of you listening to my voice deep down were going to think that the truth of the cross was, was foolishness. But Jesus 
also knew that it was the glory of God in the cross that the world needed the most. In fact, Jesus actually knew that it was the glory of God in and through the cross that people were actually longing for. They were longing for the pain to be removed. They were longing for something bigger than they were. So if that's the glory of God, and if it's that big of a deal, what is it? What is the glory of God? Well, there's, there's no way I can answer that question in one sermon or in one million sermons. In fact, it's, it's kind of impossible, really, to describe the glory of God. I can say this, though. The glory of God is so amazing and so awesome that it has no beginning and it has no end, and that the whole message of the Bible is that for believers, we will spend an infinite eternity never growing tired, never being bored of enjoying and worshiping the glory of God. It'll never stop. We'll never stop enjoying the glory of God. That's something that's hard to to put into words. John Piper says it's like the difference of trying to describe a basketball to somebody and describing beauty to somebody, right? He says a basketball you you can kind of describe. He, He puts it this way. Well, it's a round thing made out of leather or rubber, and it's about 10 or 9 inches in diameter, and you blow it up. You inflate it so it's pretty hard, and then you can bounce it like this, and you can throw it to people, and you can run while you're bouncing it. And then there's this hoop at the end. It used to be a basket, and you try to throw the ball through the hoop, and that's why it's called basketball. And he says this, they would have a really good idea of what it is, and they'd be able to spot one and tell it from a soccer ball or a football. You can. You, know, you can describe a basketball and people can figure out, oh, that's, that's a basketball, it's football, it's soccer. Okay, I got it, I got it. But, but you can't do that with, with beauty. You, you can try, but, but it just, it, it's not as easy. But here's the thing. When you see beauty, you know it. Like, like you know it. That, that's, that's beautiful. There's that old phrase, beauty's in the eye of the beholder. Eh, a little bit. But sometimes something is beautiful and every beholder knows it. See, glory is kind of like that. It's this thing that that we can't really put into words. It's kind of too amazing. It's too awesome. But when you see it, you kind of know it. And when you see the Son of God, the Lamb of God, suspended in the air, Paying the full price of my sin and your sin. Displaying the the glory of God in this radically full way so that you and I might have full salvation. You you get just a, a glimpse, a pretty powerful glimpse of how amazing and how awesome the glory of God really is and the lengths that the glory of God will go to pursue You may not be able to put it into words, but when you see it, you know it. See, the glory of God is this amazing thing because the cross, as a display of the glory of God, shows us something that we really long for, and that's a relationship. Michael Reeves is a theology professor and author. He, 
he describes this, this scene a little bit like this. Imagine for a moment a single person God. Having been alone for eternity, would it want fellowship with us? It seems most unlikely. Would it even know what fellowship was? Almost certainly not. Such a God might allow us to live under its rule and protection, but little more. Then he goes on. Think of the uncertain hope of the Muslim or the Jehovah's Witness. They may finally attain paradise, but even there they will have no real fellowship with their God. Their God would not want it. But if God is a father whose very life has been about loving and delighting in his precious son, then you begin to see a God who would have far more intimate and marvelous aims. What kind of aim? Aims to draw us into his life and his joy, to embrace us with the very love that he has for his dear son. And he goes on. The God who is infinitely more beautiful than all the gods of human religion offers an infinitely more beautiful salvation. Here is a God who can win back wandering hearts by the mere opening of eyes to who he is, who can give the deepest hope and comfort to the stumbling saint. Paul had some days where he was a stumbling saint. He, he was stumbling through his pain, so to speak. But his God gave him deep hope and deep comfort in the middle of all of that suffering, in the middle of all of that pain, because that's who God is. It was the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ that helped Paul do something that every single one of us longed to do. And what is that? Listen to 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Don't you want to not lose heart? I, I mean, I do. I don't want to lose heart. I, I don't want my stress and my discouragement and my moments of depression to crush me. I don't want to be crushed. I don't, I don't want to lose heart. But, but doesn't this statement sound a little crazy coming from Paul? <laughs> I mean, how could Paul not lose heart? I mean, really, when I look at my life and I look at Paul's life, I'm a little bit embarrassed. I mean, you know, Paul experienced third world problems, and, and I only experienced first world problems. What does that mean? What's, what's first world and, and, uh, and third world? Well, it just means that we are very easily perplexed, and we are very easily stressed, and we are very easily depressed, and we are very easily prone to lose heart in a world where we have lots and lots of comfort. Like, like some weeks, the worst thing we faced is, is some kid making fun of, us, fun of us at school, you know. Some weeks, the, the worst thing we face is that the Wi-Fi goes out at our house or at work, right? Some weeks, the, the worst thing that we face is that our spouse ignores what we ask them to do. Some weeks, the worst thing that we face is that our kids do the opposite of what we ask them to do. Some weeks, the worst thing we face is high gas prices. The worst thing that we face is having to replant shrubs and flowers in our yard. The worst thing that we face is ordering a hamburger with no pickles, and they put pickles on it, right? But those are, those are sometimes the worst things we face, sometimes. 
we're first world people. We, we live in a lot of comfort. We hardly ever have to face third world issues, like never having electricity at all, like never having access to any clean water to drink, like never having access to medicine even though we are sick and full of disease. Sometimes we forget that in third world countries, every hour they face the danger of of bombing at their home. And I read a statistic that said there's a certain area where they now estimate that a child dies every five seconds from hunger. We don't face those things. Paul's life was all third world. I mean, if we spent 30 minutes on an average day with Paul, we would lose heart in like 47 seconds. And yet Paul doesn't lose heart. Like he doesn't lose heart. And not only that, he goes, you know, none of us do. <laughs> His little band of merry men going around with the gospel, they, they didn't lose heart. Through all their pain and through all their suffering, they didn't lose heart. How? How? Well, he tells us. Look at the rest of verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. Paul experienced physical pain. He experienced physical suffering. Paul experienced emotional pain, and he experienced emotional suffering. I would say most of us have have been there to some degree this week, some of us more than others. I love how Jeff Thomas describes Paul in the light of Paul's own words. He writes, his body is getting older. He doesn't bounce back so quickly when he's been laid low. His brain cells die and are not being renewed. He is more forgetful. His eyesight is not what it once was. He cannot walk as far in one day as he could. His body has been damaged by all the sufferings he has endured for the sake of the gospel. Paul could see that the work of the gospel was killing him. He was old long before his time. He made no attempt to hide that from himself or others. He was a broken man at an age when others were fighting fit. Some days we feel like that, right? And some of us know somebody right now that's, that's in the middle of that. But it wasn't just the impact of the wears and the tears of pain and suffering and, and aging. There was something else Paul was having to deal with constantly. Thomas goes on. His outer man was also exposed to fierce temptations. He finds himself with the seeds of every sin, anger, Jealousy, lust, greed, retaliation, bitterness, self-pity, reluctance to pray, cowardice to speak, and a spirit of self-righteousness. So much so that the evil that he would not do, he finds himself doing. In other words, most days for Paul, it seemed like things were getting worse. Seems like there was more pain, there was more suffering, there was more difficulty. There was more persecution. There was more discouragement. There were more opportunities to lose heart. 
Jeff Thomas continues. But that is only half the story. Paul appeared to be a fading sick old man, but inwardly, he was being effectually transformed day by day. His youth was being renewed like the eagle. Paul could remember clearly certain men and incidents from 30 years earlier as if they happened yesterday. He had memorized entire sections of the scriptures and can repeat them to old age. He could shrug his shoulders at disease, decay, and death and get on with the work of God. When everyone else left him, he knew the Lord was standing by him. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, he would say. He could do shipwrecks. He could do beatings. He could do torture. He could do prison. He could do persecution. He could do pain. He could do all of those things through Christ. What does that mean? I was reading something this week on anxiety, and there was a fantastic quote in there from John Bloom. This is what John said. There's only one solution to anxiety, the assurance everything is going to be okay. That's one to tattoo on your brain. It's very true. There's only one solution to anxiety, the assurance everything is going to be okay. See, Paul had hope. He had comfort. He had power in the midst of his pain, in the midst of his suffering. He had all of these because he knew without a shadow of a doubt that everything was going to be okay. How do you know that? You see, Paul knew in this moment that he's writing these folks at Corinth about his pain and about how his body's decaying and about how eventually death is coming, he's writing with joy and confidence that everything's going to be okay because Paul knew that Palm Sunday was not the end of the story. He knew Easter was coming. He knew Easter was coming. 